If you're serious about betting, this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by Pinnacle.com, the Serious About Betting podcast features me, your host, Ben Cronin, and some of the biggest names and brightest minds in the world of betting. Welcome again to the Serious About Betting podcast. I preempted it last time on the podcast with Matthew Trenhale that we might run a little bit long and, and that's exactly what happened. An hour and a half in and we've still got plenty of ground to cover and some interesting discussion to be had. So Matthew has very kindly come back on the podcast to carry on our chat. How are you, Matthew? Very good, Ben. Good to hear it. Yeah, so we, we I mean, it was a great podcast for me last time. I really enjoyed the recording. We we talked about like your background, your your view on betting the idea of success, what success is, how you measure it, and all sorts of stuff around that. I think now we can we can pretty much tie those two together and and take a deeper dive into the the current state of the industry. If if that sounds good with you, yeah, good with me. Cool. So we talked about your your job as in terms of like odds compiling and stuff like that, and obviously working what what would be seen as the the bookmaker side, um, and also your your betting side and things like that. So. For people out there listening that are, they don't have any experience of odds compilation or anything like that, and they just they're, they're a, a casual or a normal better, should we say? What for you is the the difference between setting odds for a bookmaker and then betting or, or trading yourself? It it really boils down to, I suppose, if you think of it as a better wants to be uh, really accurate twenty percent of the time and can be sort of very roughly accurate 80% of the remaining time, I suppose. And a bookmaker wants to be reasonably accurate 80% of the time and never awful the other 20%. So any given time, bookmakers know that there's going to be prices that are, you know, poor in terms of their predictive accuracy, I guess, or will end up being fairly volatile you know there's every chance that uh, there will be a large deviation between where they start and where they finish their closing line and that deviation will be down to their lack of knowledge between where the starting opening price is and the closing price Um, and so they almost you know your primary concern as a bookmaker should be to a degree just humility I suppose aware that at any given point you do not have 100% of the information and that essentially um, your job is not to create uh, perfect prices. It's basically to make sure that you don't have too many leaks. You know, you want low variance performance, really. Um, Whereas as a punter, you're sort of constantly in the world looking for moonshots, I suppose. You're constantly trying to find uh, patches of real high outperformance. By definition, you know, you're trying to beat uh, beat the market and you know that's not possible to do, you know, super consistently, you know, to you know, with great ease. So any given time, if you're coming up with your own odds, there's every chance that, you should be discarding a large amount of the bets that it's recommending you have. And this should come either from the fact that you're not very significantly different from the market, I suppose, um, or potentially that there are parts of your model or parts of your process that you know you, you sort of have a leak that, you know, can't be avoided and then hopefully you distill it down to the 20 percent or much less i mean i've used 80 20 but it, i mean it really can be you know 90 10 95 5 even but you want to make sure that uh those few instances um that you do place bets you bet hard you know you stake almost almost disproportionately large to be quite honest because you're dealing with you should restrict yourself, you know, you should be harsh and restricting the number of bets you have. But when you do have bets, you should really press your advantage. So that, you know, a lot of people's problem when it comes to discipline and so on, you know, but if you don't have a model to tell you what to do, if you're just using your own sort of, I suppose, intuition, then you should be constantly looking for reasons why not to have the bet. And then when you do come up with, you know, I cannot see any reason why this isn't a good value bet then you should really commit to it. 
basically. Whereas, you know, bookmakers should be commitment phobes, really. They should never want to commit to being massively one, one-sided by intent. Bookmakers are one-sided by the nature of humanity. You know, humans will pile in, you know, it'll become so that the general intuition of the public sort of herds around one outcome as being the popular betting outcome. And it can be simple just as the price is big enough or the team is popular or this particular situation particularly speaks to the narrative of the casual better. You know, you get one-sided constantly and there's no value in trying to even out the liabilities because, you know, ultimately as a bookmaker, you must be thinking that so a liability of a hundred grand that is placed by people who will lose lifetime a hundred percent of the time is not the same liability as a hundred grand from people who are likely long term positive EV betters. You can't be thinking of those liabilities equivalent, really. Um, and invariably, you know, if you're calculating risk, there should be a sort of a multiplier effect. You know, you double count the smart people's bets, triple count it, ten times it, or you can do the inverse. You can move it down how much they bet, you know, reduce their volume and therefore you you know so a hundred grand not all hundred grand liabilities are created equal. Um so as a bookmaker you want to make sure that um you commit to as few hundred grand liabilities of the wrong type as possible. And you want to be able to dis you know spread it as wide as possible across as many outcomes as possible. In fact you don't have any choice. You have to offer odds for every match, every game. So, you know, it's it's almost like one's looking to lose as little as possible across as much as possible, and one's wanting to bet as few times as possible um, with as, you know, as as high as possible positive EV as possible. This sort of changed a little bit, I suppose, over years as people now want to almost, in their heads, do what the bookmaker's doing. They create a model any single deviation from their model and the bookmaker's model should be, you know, automatically bet, you know, so if it's 0.1 difference, you know, I've got, you know, a Kelly stake relevant to 0.1 difference. And if it's 10% difference, I've got a Kelly stake appropriate to that. Um, I would say that this is fine. If you think that your model is, it's not even if your model is perfectly predictive, that's not whether it's relative betting. So even if you think that your model is calibrated to be perfectly good at beating the market, um, you don't know if it's perfectly calibrated, unless you know if it's perfectly calibrated across all variations of EV. So if you know that a 0.1% EV is actually 0.1%, you know, 10% is, I've got a problem. I have a big problem with Kelly staking in general um, for people because of the, you know, the idea that you've got this, it's not even like a perfectly predictive model. People rarely have a perfectly predictive model, obviously, and they also very rarely even have a model whose EV is calibrated completely um, with you know the correct correlation with their difference to the market. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there is this you know trying to just sort of bet every single game with every single deviation, and I think that the general belief is that this will kind of spread risk in essence like sort of a portfolio you know if i if i bet everything like that and my argument is, is that you're doing something as a snapshot that the bookmaker does over a time period so the bookmaker takes on every opponent across all markets but will have an opportunity to move their odds as they take bets if they want, you know, and, and adjust their prices and then take new bets and they'll constantly be taking new bets. So it's like an evolving process. Whereas people who build these models take one snapshot, right, going to bet the crap out of everything where there's a difference here in this snapshot. And the reality is, is that as those prices move, you should either be having bigger bets or smaller bets, depending on how much you incorporate the market into your model. So you're you know, your liabilities should adjust the same way a bookmaker just if you're going to bet that model versus market approach. But people don't. They often take this big snapshot. And this big snapshot approach will then ultimately mean that 
basically you're betting whatever your significant model deviation from the market is. And so you, you don't really have, you know, your risk spread. Basically, if your advantage is your model just incorporates, you know, weather better than the market, basically you're having one big weather bet against the market every week. But it looks like you're having a sort of diversified approach because you're placing, you know, 20 bets every game in every different direction. But, you know, you've got one strategy essentially and it's, you know, it's placing one, you know, dutched huge bet on your difference of opinion versus the market, which which is fine, but people shouldn't convince, people shouldn't think to themselves that they're sort of inverse bookmaking against the market in that sense. Yeah, I think it's, I always find it strange. And I think I, I asked a question similar to this in, in part one of the podcast about this idea of people effectively trying to act the bookmaker or be the bookmaker. And it feels like the the it's getting murkier and murkier as, as time goes on. Like we're getting closer to this idea of betters are, are thinking of themselves as bookmakers. And I mean, no better in the world has as much resource as a bookmaker. They don't have as much money to get things wrong and, and be able to afford to, to go in again and win that money back. Um, and there's obviously, I mean, there's the, the infrastructure and, and stuff like that is one thing of a book, bookmaker and we'll, we'll get onto that shortly. But the the other aspect that I wanted to talk about was the the skill set or the traits that are potentially required as a better, regardless of of kind of what what approach you take. But for you, is there kind of characteristics that you can kind of distill that that would you look for in a in a better, or you believe to be like required to be successful as a better in, in terms of? Um, it may be kind of like operational skills. It may be like a, a mindset type thing or, or whatever it might be. But what for you are kind of like the the traits or the skills that a better needs to be successful? So, I mean, I think that, you know, people almost like to create caricatures about this. So there's either the sort of OCD, you know, emotionless sociopath with a spreadsheet, or alternatively, there's the, you know, wizened trackside better who's got it all in his head and, you know, can just sense when the horse is going to run or when, you know, teams aren't going to perform well kind of thing. Um, and the reality is, is that, you know, there, there are plenty of messy spreadsheet people and, you know, there are plenty of um, people who take a you know, a non-data approach, but have a very analytical mental process, etc. So, I mean, the, I, I'm I'm trying to think of what the sort of commonality, I suppose, of the successful betters have. And I think it's only when you become, when you look at the really successful, I don't want to be disparaging about anyone, but, you know, the people who make a decent living, a significantly better than average living, they invariably, even if they say they have doubts, their words are not married up to what I observe invariably. So just this relentless conviction, basically. I think there does, you know, I don't even want to say it's arrogance because arrogance sort of implies a lack of respect for the market that they're beating. Um, I think it's entirely possible to be respectful of the market, but know you're better. And you know, that conviction, that sort of ability to translate to from I'm possibly better to I'm going to assume I am definitely better. And what would you do if you knew you were definitely better? Well, you wouldn't hesitate. You'd press your advantage. You'd bet big, you know, and hard, and you'd assume that nothing lasts forever. And you'd just be sort of you don't have to be an aggressive personality, but you have to be hyper-aggressive in terms of your action you'll take. So they're often very quick to adapt. You know, I, I've been in scenarios where someone has been chatting with someone else and they've sort of said, oh, you know, I've observed this in the market. What do you think that means? And there's been a little conversation. It's like, oh, maybe this is that. And by the following day, they both put, you know, 50 grand in an account together and they're hammering away at it. You know, there's no like, let's run the numbers. Let's, they've they've got an idea. It's an idea that's based on similar thought processes they've had collectively, you know, over the past X years of successful betting. You know, 
they want to be on it before someone else gets on it. And so there's that, there's this lack of hesitation. There's this sort of, you know, aggressive action, I suppose. Th- those are like the really successful. I mean, you know, if you want to talk about people who just in general outperform the average in betting, you know, a, a modicum of, you know, discipline basically is, you know, discipline sort of your basic entry level, you know, understanding that, you know, to be reckless is, you know, is damaging to the bottom line, I guess. Um, you know, when I say reckless, I mean, you know, poorly calculated risks, whereas, you know, the super successful betters are good at taking on aggressively highly calculated risks, um, even if that calculation just consists of their own sort of heuristics rather than necessarily mathematically modeling the crap out of something. So, you know, I, I'd say that seems to be the singular the singular thing that I've observed. But in terms of like, is there one particular personality, you know, profile? Um, you know, I, I don't think there is beyond that anything that's really consistent personally. One of the, one interesting thing that kind of my ears pricked when we were, we were initially chatting offline and I think you mentioned about discord and the fact that you're on MTG arena and stuff like that. And I've, I've spoken with Marco before here about, um, I know a, you, you can't necessarily, a good trader makes a good better, but we've, we've talked a bit about that ability to like game theory type stuff or, or that ability to just like naturally think about probabilities and process things in terms of like what influence one thing might have on another and stuff like that. So as, as someone who's played the, who's played Magic the Gathering as well and is involved in the, the betting industry, do you see do you see a lot of crossover there, or is it just just kind of a coincidence that there seems to be a lot of people that are successful or, or good at that game and and also venture into a career in the betting industry? I think for for me personally, so this obviously is is sort of popularized by the fact that you know Pinnacle's association with quite a few heavy games players, and it's it's interesting actually. So. Playing these kind of games, um, so Marco is a big fan, not just of Magic, but of sort of other more complex board games. Um, I believe actually Spanky is a, I forget which name of the board game that he's, um, sorry, the Twitter persona, Spanky, you know, I forget which board game he's really good at, but is, is really phenomenal at some sort of slightly higher, higher level thinking, order of thinking board game. But these are all things that I associate with betters, successful betters not necessarily with successful bookmaking. Um, the thing about Magic, it's, it's hard without going into, um, I suppose, too much detail, but the, th- the thing about tournament or top-level or professional-level Magic, the Gathering, is that, going back to the sort of hyper-aggressiveness, is that there are small windows where, due to the nature of the fact that they're always releasing new cards with new game mechanics and the meta game, as they would call it, is constantly evolving. There's small windows that crop up where you can gain huge advantage for a very short period of time. So everyone in Magic is looking to break the game. The phrase is always like, that is so broken, that card is broken, or this deck is broken, or whatever it may be. And that's what they're actively looking for. It's it's almost looking to break the game down to the point where the game designers are unhappy. You're constantly looking to basically create... Because they have to... Occasionally, they'll ban cards from a tournament play cycle because they've created a deck that's so broken and it's so... They're trying to do this because they don't want recreational play to be ruined by everyone basically losing to the same deck. They're either playing that deck or they're they're losing to it. Um so they have this cycle of banning these cards that can't be used or, you know, these kind of things. And so you've got a group of people. So so the people who design Magic the Gathering, they're bookmakers. They're trying to make a game that is equally fair to all people, always fun. And Magic the Gathering players are constantly looking to fuck it up, basically. So all the top-level Magic players are people who are excellent at basically finding holes and abusing, you know, flaws, so really good games players very much become, you know, good punters because that is essentially what good betting is often about. Now, it, you may say, well, you know, Pinnacle's a bookmaker, but my argument has always been 
the pinnacle is, you know, it may be a bookmaker, but it's a bookmaker because that provides a source of liquidity. Laying bets is another way of placing bets if you choose to frame it in that way. So if you look at Pinnacle instead of being a bookmaker as being an enormous professional syndicate of bettors, then if you have collectively a group of people whose constant job is to always be looking for edges to beat the market and then just give them sort of a a system to input that knowledge into and instead of placing bets, they've got to position themselves so that they'll take the bets. It's kind of like the inverse. But, you know, you create a very specific product when you do that. You create a product that maybe doesn't have quite the same amount of markets, you know, maybe doesn't offer, you know, the same type of limits, you know, at the same time. Or, you know, it's it sort of you, you basically are saying, right, we want to create a game environment where we can win consistently. And so we have to, you know, set up the game in our favor. Um, so, yeah, so those games, you know, I think people who are really good at those games are invariably the ones who, um, are are the ones who sort of become great punters. And it just so happens that, you know, if Pinnacle's approach is that they want to basically constantly be looking to be the market, but bet the market against, you know, one half of the market against the other, then they're sort of, they're taking on the better mindset. But then you've got people like, I suppose, you know, the, the poker player. When I when I sort of think about other advantage players and their place within sort of bookmaking, I think to myself, you know, with, with poker players, poker players have some attributes. Poker players always understand the importance of setting the game in your favor. You always want to sit down at the best table, best chance for you to um, get EV. So I'd sort of... You know, poker players would be good uh, customer profilers, potentially. You know, I notice like a lot of people who do a lot of online grinding, you know, they have their own little portfolio of profiles for, you know, players anyway, loose players versus tight players versus good versus whale versus all the rest of it. Um, and then you've got, you know, class another class of one, but you've got card counters. And um, card counters understand the law of large numbers probably better than almost, you know, even better than poker players, probably, you know, they understand that you've got to be in that game constantly, even when you're losing, you know, you've just got to keep on churning over hand after hand. And in a weird way, like they're like bookmakers and they don't have a choice. They've constantly got to put themselves in a situation where they could be losing lots of money all the time, card counters, because they've got to be at the day at, you know, they've got to be there playing hands that are negative EV, but then when the positive EV comes along, so they're like they're like betters and bookmaker hybrids. In fact, in general, I, I would say that people who, um, you know, decent mental acuity, memory, and a willingness to bear never-ending pain, you know, card counters probably would make great bookmakers on the whole. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of the people who are good sports betters I know you know, who like to pick their isolated spots, sort of find the idea of card counting anathema. And by contrast, people who are like long-term card counters find the idea of a sort of nebulous edge that's hard to quantify in sports betting um, anathema to them. So, yeah, you know, in in a weird way, um, all different advantage players sort of have different attributes. But like I say, if, if, if you ask me, you know, if, if if I had to be like the sort of the sorting hat of uh, of Hogwarts, and I had to, you know, and and uh, the the guy you know came in who was like a professional magic player, I definitely would want him in my betting syndicate before I wanted him in my bookmaker. No offense to professional magic player. <laughs> well, I mean, that's it's interesting to think conceptually as well. I mean, I like the the explanation or the reasoning you give there, and that that kind of notion of breaking the the deck or breaking the card or whatever it is, um, and it's. Because my view on it is, you betters tend to, or the the general perception of betters is that like it's almost let me focus on what I'm good at. What can I beat the bookmaker at? Because I'm I've got this model, or I've I've got this day, or whatever it might be. And instead, it it could almost be instead of people thinking like what am I good at, they need to take the inverse and think like what is the bookmaker not good at or how can I break what the bookmaker is offering or, or pick holes or, or find the holes. Do you agree? Yes, absolutely. Um, 
and you know that that that's sort of generally why everyone sort of obsesses over you know the level of contrarianness that you have to the general market because you know if if a bookmaker's happy taking the this type of bet off everyone then it must be because that's where they have the advantage um ergo you know you're constantly looking for the places that they don't want to take bets um because that's where they must believe that they don't have the advantage um so yeah sort of ex- exploiting weaknesses is is always um it's always the best way to look at it really And as I I did your your initial intro and I, I mentioned your um, your podcast and inside betting, like I said, I'm I'm a massive fan of it. I've listened to the episode. I I really enjoy the the style of it and kind of imagine you sat there by like a an open fireplace and the musings that you've got on the the betting industry and and had a bit of a break for a while from it. And then your your recent episode was. I can't remember the title offhand, but something around like how to build a, a bookmaker, not a dressmaker. Um, anyone that's listening to this and, and hasn't listened to that, I, I strongly suggest you you go and listen to it. Maybe do it in chunks. It is it is quite a lengthy one, but maybe just Matthew, if you could kind of summarize the the kind of ideas you were digging into and and what this concept of like a dressmaker versus a bookmaker actually is to you. Um, right, so this was me trying to answer the, the sort of the ongoing question of why bookmakers, um, you know, don't operate the lay same size bets to all comers all the time, you know, and uh, why do some bookmakers restrict uh, customers um, or potentially shut their accounts completely? And the phrase comes from um, from again the, the the Twitter persona that is Spanky, um, who describes uh, bookmakers who won't book his action or take his bets as being dressmakers versus real bookmakers, and this also invariably, particularly sort of under the sort of American market, has you know we've very much got this phrase European model. Um, versus offshore model, I suppose maybe offshore being the you know the Caribbean, Costa Rican, Panama kind of style of bookmaking, and um, versus uh, European uh, bookmaking, which is uh, sort of personified by you know particularly the big UK corporates and so on, where they you know restrict accounts and close uh, accounts that are going to be long term profitable against them. And I wanted to sort of basically say. You know, it, it's quite clear because it's it's been done that you can set up a bookmaker designed to take, you know, designed to sort of do the not, not profile the client, but uh, effectively profile the bet. You know, adjust their odds, behave with exchange style mechanics, basically sort of a market led set of pricing. Um, can you know? can be done but i wanted to sort of stress um all that's necessary to make it happen and ultimately why even if that is a long-term profitable venture it has not become the the prevalent way of running a bookmaker um you know these these are all bookmakers um by by name and um I don't think people should sort of say you're not being a book, you know, bookmakers have evolved in the same, you know, you know, a Lamborghini and, a, you know, a Volkswagen Golf are both cars, but they're, you know, they're very different and they're designed to do things differently in a, you know, different way. So, yeah, I mean, I, it was slightly born out of frustration. I'd observed, you know, at... For example, when I worked at uh, Mustard Systems, when they launched their their bookmaker, Mustard Bet, I looked at all the work and investment that went on behind the scenes there and all the amount of, uh, I suppose, 
uh, bureaucracy that goes with running a bookmaker, the legal requirements, all these elements, the you know the tax regime, the <clears throat> you know requirements to get data and so on. And I talked about ways that you know posthumously maybe some of those issues could have been navigated as well, I suppose. But ultimately, you know, a bookmaker was built, <clears throat> which turned a trading profit, and you know this was in a you know from the get-go you know <clears throat> and um it was sort of taking this policy from you know from day one you know Pin pinnacle obviously had a prolonged period where they were booking a lot of uh, recreational bets uh, from the us originally and then their model you know evolved but must have pretty much had to you know the first 500 clients through the door were all names i recognized because there were people who'd taken fortunes out of the bookmaking industry generally, and uh, and yeah, we we tried to provide a you know a hospitable location for them to all fight against each other, and you know take a minuscule rake out of the out of the sharks feeding on each other, I suppose in essence. Um, but unless you've got a real passion for building that business and supporting that business, and have no better use for your money it's just hard to justify really you know i think there was a time where it had more value as a business enterprise when you could really aggressively arbitrage the rest of the market but that's become harder you know for two obvious reasons one but makes have become better at spotting arbitrage and closing it and two um there's definitely been a trend towards not playing the sharp side of the ARP. You know, people who are long-term serious arbitrages, and, and by arbit serious arbitrages, I mean people who are making more than six figures a year out of doing it, um, you know, stopped uh, stopped playing the, the sharp side of the ARP, meaning that, you know, the sharp bookmaker is not getting their piece in the deal. And, um, you know, more and more people went towards sort of this idea of, trying to digest from the market what the true price is from the market and then picking off the, uh, I mean, they normally go by the name of value betting or value betting software. So, you know, so some of the joy of being a smart bookmaker or rather some of the revenue stream, you know, you weren't, the whole point of doing it was that you sort of created this pool of liquidity for yourself via arbitrage. And it was a pool of liquidity that was by being contrarian to bookmakers who cater predominantly to recreational punters. And that was great. But as that pool shrinks up, you know, then that business model in, in isolation becomes less interesting. So, you know, mentioning no names, you can potentially go into B2B provision as another revenue stream, potentially. Um, or you can then take a long, hard audit of all the business you've done. Ask yourself, what kind of limits and what kind of margins do I need to have if I take away a lot of that arbitrage business? Maybe I need to reevaluate that. I mean, I'm purely speculating as to why Pinnacle's model has evolved and why it's changing. But, you know, we've gone from being a completely sort of super private company where, you know, the predominant faces behind it are these hardened game players and professional gamblers to, you know, Paris Smith widely doing interviews and them having the largest stand I on betting on sports last time I went to betting on sports in, in London, you know. So clearly you need to adapt. And if you're new investors and you've got a million, two million, ten million pounds, dollars to invest in a betting related business, you just want to get the most bang for your buck. And, you know, there are a lot of people who were, despite the challenge involved in it, were singularly unimpressed when mustard said their their trading the people who understood how hard it was appreciated it but when they told them their trading margin they were like oh just sort of disinterest really um and even when you extrapolate it and say like well you know if we get a billion's worth of volume that small percentage is is worthwhile but they look at you and say you know how are you going to get that volume and you know the, the process of getting more volume in the door when you're a bookmaker catering to all comers is challenging because you have got limited expense resource to capture the market that's being targeted heavily 
by the recreational bookmakers who do have deep pockets to spend lots of money. And then you've also got to try and make sure you do actually have to compete for the sharp business because the nature of sharps is that they want to cause as little ripples within the market as possible when they're placing their bets so that they can basically hit everyone before the market moves. And by definition, if you want to be a good bookmaker to sharp punters, you need that information as early as possible. This has been alluded to by, I mean, I, I, everyone seems to be doing these kind of interviews now, but uh, one of the bookmakers at, uh, at Bookmaker slash Bet Chris, you know, alluded to the fact that they're getting, um, you know, odds from, they're letting certain people, smart actors, have first pop at the prices before they're publicly available. Um, I mean, God, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there were people who used to sell tissues, you know, pre-market odds to bookmakers for horse racing and various things um, to give you a starting point. You know, this is no different to that, basically. Um, it's always been going on. But yeah, you've got to compete hard for that business and you've got to make sure that the sharp actors you're trying to get hit you early are content with the size they're willing to hit. I noticed the Betcris bookmaker guy was very, you know, pointed out that some of these people were happy to take quite modest sized bets for their, you know, for their effort. Um, which is great. You know, if you find those people, like I say, a true marker is not someone who crushes you with the largest size bet possible. A true marker in terms of value to a bookmaker is one who bets in sort of modest size and happy to um potentially make a high margin off of relatively small stakes. But, you know, it's just, it was, you know, as I say, it's a long podcast and I discuss a lot of the elements of sort of the difficulties of this. And the reality is, is that, you know, this idea of a dressmaker, you know, how awful it is. It's like, I, I just, and it's not because I've worked in bookmaking. It's just this idea that this level of unfairness doesn't go on around you all the time. And it's like, oh, but make have to declare this. Do you know what I'd love? I'd love it if my insurance company had to declare the calculated probability of my house burning down and then the probability that is represented by the premium that I pay. So, you know, they may well calculate the chance of my house burning down to be 0.001%. And yet my insurance premium says that they think it's a 10% chance. I mean, look at the fucking margin on that, you know, and like they don't have to declare this to me. Ever. They don't have to calculate. I mean, the greatest gig for professional betting syndicates, if ever they get their foot in the door, people like risk with a Q and things like that, is uh, sports insurance. Oh, yeah. So we want to, ins- you know, we're, you know, some football club sponsor and we pay a bonus if they win the league. Um, okay. Yeah. So on uh, Pinnacle, they're like 4.86 to win the league. Um, yeah. We can give you even money. It's just absolute fucking charlatan <laughs> behavior. And the great thing is, is that. The um the syndicates can massively find a midway point between the standard insurance market and that. But even then people don't want to take their even then people don't want to do it with uh, the syndicates and so on, because they'd rather have something that's got Lloyds of London behind it and, and all the rest of it. So, you know, and you know, pe- you know, McDonald's doesn't have to declare to me how much it costs to make my hamburger and what their profit margin is. So, you know, we don't constantly get the details of people's business and you know insurance is another great example it's like people get not insured people's health conditions are bad enough that they don't get health insurance they are turning away customers and it doesn't say on you know they don't have to declare um in big letters you know people say like oh there should be you know bookmakers have to declare if they're going to close accounts turn them away and it's like well they do invariably in some form or another in their terms and conditions buried away and we don't ask other companies to put, you know, up front that, you know, by the way, this is going to happen um, in big, bold letters over the front. And, you know, people always say like, oh, if when punters find out, like, oh, I've got these, you know, I love the example is always my friends, you know, they love playing, having just like a recreational bet. And when I tell them that they actually close punters, they cannot believe it. They just kind of, it's like, well, I don't know, maybe you just got different friends to me. But when I explain it, you know, they say like, well, you know, how much money have you made? And I'm like, that's what I'm saying. Well, yeah, I mean, that's not sustainable for them, is it? And I'm like, well, if, if they had a billion of me, I, I'm useless example because I'm not very good better. But, you know, if they had a million smart people, yeah, you're right. It wouldn't be, you know, necessarily sustainable. Um, and certainly not with the with the cost base, with the competitive nature of recreational bookmaking, trying to get, you know, now everyone's quoting these client acquisition costs, you know, because they're available in all these... Um, 
stock market, you know, uh, you know, people are like seeing how much DraftKings pays to get a new account on board and so on. And, you know, there seems to be this argument they're like, oh, you know, but what about, um, you know, getting new punters in the door by, uh, fuck, what was I going to say? Uh, getting new punters in the door by just sort of saying that we take an honest bet and we don't close people. It's like, you know what? It may have great marketing value. Pinnacle will be the ones to answer that question. Pinnacle came out with the winner's welcome tagline. Um, for a long time, they, you know, they still do. Like they have um, banner ads all over the arbitrage software sites and all the rest of it. And, you know, they're very clear, you know, arbitrage welcome. Uh, they even, you know, had articles probably even before your time, Ben, outlining why, you know, we take arbors and happy to take arbitrage bets. You know, they, they sort of, how much is that worth in terms of to them of getting good sort of client to the door? I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the you know the the value of appearing whiter than white. I don't know what uh, moral sanctity has as marketing value. I suppose. Well, I guess I guess it's the the segment of customers that might be interested in that. And what what I was going to say is I'm I'm kind of with you on this this concept of fairness and the the complaints that get levied against. I mean, like you said, you call it like the European model or whatever it might be. Um, and to to kind of use your example is for me, and uh, and I know some other people I've spoken to. It's it shouldn't be this un- unfairness. Isn't maybe a, a too strong a word to use, but should it be the case that if you want to play the real game, you bet with a pinnacle or or you bet on the exchange or wherever it is you go that that gives you that ability to to kind of play the no restriction game. And those that want the bit of fun can can bet with their recreational bookmaker to to kind of use your Volkswagen Lamborghini example. It's like if you want the Lamborghini, you're not that you know the Volkswagen doesn't have a Lamborghini engine. You're not going to be interested in that. Therefore, you should you should take the product that, that you're after rather than take the Volkswagen and complain that it doesn't do naught to sixty in in three seconds or whatever it is. Yeah, you know that's. I think so. I mean, again, I've got a name dropping him relentlessly now in this podcast, but Spanky rightly said that SBR used to have a little marker, SBR, the sports bookmaker review or whatever, website used to have a little marker whether it takes professional play or not um, on uh, on the website, which they would put next to certain bookmakers. So a bookmaker could get uh, a grade from them basis on whether they pay out on time, how many complaints are made against them, all these kind of things. So they could get an A grade by just operating with, I suppose, integrity in that regard. But then they wouldn't necessarily get the tick saying, you know, professionals accepted. And, um, you know, I'm quite, you know, I'm quite happy for it to be known publicly. You know, I would happily have. and I, But I think this stuff is publicized anyway to the people who it becomes a problem with, you know, short Google search later or whatever. And they will be advised, you know, it, you know, if you want to go down this route, you know, you can, you know, allegedly find ways around opening new accounts at recreational bookmakers, etc. Or if you want to go down the other route, you can maybe look at trading on Betfair, betting with Pinnacle, betting into markets which accept, you know, sharper bets, etc. You know, the options are there to those, you know, I'm happy for it to be a responsibility of the individual, to be quite honest. Well, sorry, I could just shorten that sentence to I'm happy for things to be the responsibility of the individual. But, you know, to go and find out these things. But I'd also be okay, you know, if, if um, you know, if New Jersey said that you had to declare, you know, they were happy with, a, you know, because you can't, is it right that you can't close in New Jersey, but you can restrict so I think um, you can allow people to play like $2 card counting or whatever, but you can't actually tell them to go away or something like that. Anyway, and it's applied to sports bookmaking. So, yeah, you know, I'm happy for them to create this kind of symbol that has to be put on the uh, on the bookmaker's website. And it can be small, bottom left corner, whatever, that says whether, you know, we restrict, you know, are limits universal or will your limits vary depending on your success as a better? You know, I'd be happy for that. You know, I mean, for me, like in terms of you know, when people talk about fairness, actually, I just want to I just want to sort of cover this a little bit is there are lots of unfair things that aren't necessary and are detrimental to the consumer experience, you know, that can be fixed and improved upon. Undoubtedly, 
Um, and, you know, they're, 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 they all require some investment invariably by the bookmaker or the technology providers. Maybe not a huge amount, but there are definitely things that can be done to improve everyone's overall experience. Uh, some of them completely sort of, you know, you know, asinine, I suppose, in, in a sense, in that, you know, maybe the American market doesn't want, you know, to have oddly rounded prices or something like that. That's something that you should be you should be able to offer. Although, you know, I mean, never did never did Pinnacle any harm, obviously. But you know, you you know, you they want minus one ten both sides of a handicap regardless kind of thing. You know, there's little things like that that just improve um actually improve your bookmaker's performance actually as well. But you know, improve your um you know, user experience. Uh, right down to sort of, you know, this idea of clearly posting limits of how much <clears throat> you can bet on a market. I got no problem with that. That seems like a, a good rational thing, you know, making sure people get paid out, having some clear definition of what a palpable error is. I mean, that's a difficult one, you know, bets that have happened after the fact, you know, that could be pretty clearly outlined, you know, within terms and conditions. You can maybe, you know, outline that in a too long didn't read, you know, terms and conditions on your website, you know, these sort of areas of, um, you know, that can be worked upon, you know, when people talk about um, palpable errors, invariably, if, you know, odds are far away from inverted commas, the market, uh, because we don't have a centralized exchange, like a sort of financial market, it's hard to know what, you know, when someone puts in, what was the example I saw? So there was a guy who's done some, been, been on some podcasts. There was one that was recently, I think it was the, I mean, you had it in the MLB that you suggested about like the games had already started and people took bets, but then there was also the MLS and the, the, the handicaps being way off. And I think there was a team at like plus four or plus five or something like that. Um, but is that not, we were kind of talking about like the this, to go back to the MTG and breaking the deck. Like, is that not, like another way of saying you're exposing the flaws of a bookmaker i mean i don't know if i think with like uk law and sale of goods and stuff like that it's like if something's priced wrong in the supermarket they don't have to they don't have to honor it but if you get through the purchase and you buy it and you walk out the shop like that's the deal is done yeah so well for example you know going back to mtg breaking the game via the game's own mechanics is one thing yeah there were people who've been done in magic for um for you know using card sharp shuffles when they shuffle the deck you know palming cards all these kind there are people who have done things that are you know outside i suppose the moral compass of the game or i suppose it's almost like when the edge becomes so large to be definitive so it's almost like once there is zero certainty zero uncertainty about the fact that you have generated an edge for yourself almost that is, it's why God's compilers historically have been so bitter about arbitrage. It's because you know at that instance for a fact that you've taken a bad bet. Because even if you're two reasonably smart actors, arbitraging between you normally means that the right price is somewhere in the middle. So you know that you've taken a bad bet kind of thing. So, but, you know, I, I the thing about, so quite often things that happen, right? Okay, so handicaps put in inverse so the minus two gets put in as sort of plus two sort of the other way around to the other team whatever those kind of things if you go up first it's really bloody hard to prove well if you go up first you've almost got no recourse in that situation um because you are the market when you go up first so <clears throat> it'd be very hard if every other bookmaker went up to the other way if you then to say oh no i meant to go up to the other way all along so you know that's why you should have a bookmaker which has dynamic limits that increase close to kickoff and the more bets you take. Simple solution there. Um, you should also have some sort of internal sanity check. So if you're using a model as a bookmaker and team A is 57% chance to win and you put team B in as minus two, it should go, well, hang on, this doesn't correlate between one. Now, if you've got a model, chances are you've got inputs that you put into the model that then spit out the prices. So then it's a case of, right, well, okay, so your expected goals for team A, you've typed in as 1.73 and team B, 1.12, you know, and it spits out this. Well, ideally, if you're really good at what you do, you should have a sanity check internally that says, hang on, 
referencing some internal database, these sets of expected goals are so far off what our default QA model says. Are you sure this is what you meant to put in? You know, lots of internal sanity checks, you know, and just something as simple as when people put like, so what was the one DraftKings came, some guy pointed out, so they just want to put like in a golf, like top 10, they put in 45 instead of 4.5. Most obvious fat finger, you know. These, these, by the way, these happen on your pension, by the way. Financial industry, this shit happens all the fucking time. Oh, I bought 10 million instead of a million. Whoops. You know, so, you know, it's not like the preserve, it's not like only bookmakers are shambolic at this. But, you know, one thing's for sure is that if, um, you know, if the DraftKings back engine there where they've got 45, now, if you're scraping other people's website prices and publishing them, B2B software makers, all of you, just don't be first fucking shit at it, would be my argument. You know, don't accidentally map the, the win price to the top 10 price. But again, they should have a, something in their back office that sort of says, are you sure 45, you know, you can set some sort of default sanity check, right? Top 10 prices normally are, you know, this range, you know, players with win prices of this price should not have top fives, you know, bigger than, t- you can make it wide boundaries. But of course, building all these sanity checks into your software, in other words, doing things correctly, um, is something that does not instantly generate new revenue. The problem with all betting business in particular is that all innovation is around getting more customers in the door. You know, affiliation for bookmaking, like they were right at the front in absolutely creating some of the most artful fucking affiliation stuff. You know, they're pretty good at search engine optimization. They'd like really push those areas bookmakers because that is very obviously better we are at this more chance we get of getting people to deposit money and they became you know they developed a lot of um you know other thing you know live streaming on the websites these kind of things these are really obvious innovations but if you say i can plug leaks and make the customer experience fairer fairness very hard to quantify you know how good that is for customer retention because uh, while people say that lots of people, it's hard to get them to switch if they're very recreational from one bookmaker to another, it, it is hard. But at the same time, bookmaker accounts often go dormant for a period. So they deposit 500 quid, they do their money quickly, and then they sort of lapse. They, they don't want to put money back in because they feel stung by the experience or whatever. So, you know, with customer retention, it's, it's sort of hard to know how your fairness, increased fairness, your improved you know, system performance back end, you know, is really impacting fairness. And so basically saying you plug leaks um, in things does not really get much traction, development time, money time spent on it. So that's why you get, you know, increasing crazy bet builder variants and so on, which very obviously drive high margin, you know, turnover um, and less things that sort of prevent fat fingers being built. Um, and it's really hard to quantify what those fat fingers cost, especially because bookmaking industry does offer a fairly loose palpable error policy whereby most errors have no cost. Um, unless you work in something like the arms territories or some other territories where bets have to be honored, you know, US. But, you know, I suppose if you said that these fat fingers always had to be honored, then that would prompt potentially more, you know, innovation. I mean, you can say that the ultimate leak is people who win money. And bookmakers have gone hard into innovating over time in that. So customer profiling has had far more time, effort, and innovation put into it than has done improving the models of markets. A lot of the models have not changed. In my case, I've observed them as not significantly different from the ones I used 20 years ago, or rather the Excel spreadsheets I was using 20 years ago. But, you know, the ability, you know, the amount of machine learning and so on that's gone into profiling customers. So, you know, the money automatically goes to where they feel the most bang for buck is. And the reality is, is that if you get to see bets come in and then decide whether you want to take any more, that um, is considered preferable. You know, we'd much rather be a trawler, you know, catching all the fish and then tossing out what we don't need in terms of we feel this is better because it means that we don't have to, you know, dilute our marketing. You know, if we don't have to be, you know, specific about which customers we bring in the door, 
then we can have much greater power in how we operate marketing. And we consider marketing to be our big advantage. Whereas if we have to be really selective about, um, you know, how we orientate our product, we're going to catch fewer fish and be less chance of getting, you know, the really, the whales and so on. Well, do, do you think then, I don't know if the, the two examples I previously mentioned about the, the MLB and the MLS and whether it's just getting more publicity now um, more than ever, but is the suggestion then but that potentially some bookmakers aren't, they, they don't need to invest in, in covering those mistakes because they know that they've got the, the palpable error in the T's and C's or whatever it might be to kind of get them out of jail for, for want of a better phrase if it's if it's a costly mistake and instead the the money isn't I mean it's not even being invested in in managing risk properly, but it's it's more turning into kind of like a a marketing focus. And as we said, these bookmakers that are potentially just looking more at customers rather than actually um, refining the product that they actually offer. So let's, let's, you know, what causes, so let's say there's someone who places a, let, oh, let's, let's, let's sort of make it as convoluted as, as possible. So let's say there is a VIP client of a major bookmaker, uh, someone who's lost in the millions to that bookmaker. And then, someone who's very good at spotting, you know, obvious ricks on the or mistakes on the bookmaker's website tells them, you know, this um this is like they've just put the handicap in the wrong way around on this. And that customer calls up and says um I'd like to have, you know, half a million on this one side let's say it's an NFL handicap put in the wrong way around. Um, you know, I'd like to have, you know, half a million on this account manager doesn't think about it, doesn't do any verification as to whether that makes sense or not, just says on the taped line. Yep, you've got that. So they realize there's been a fuck up, they go back to the client, the client says, you know, no, I did, I want that bet. And um, goes to some sort of arbitration, you know, whichever gaming council or whatever tape line says and then we've now got a policy that you have to honor very obvious palpable again very obvious so hard isn't it what is very obvious but you know you have to you've given no wiggle room that customer has to you know pay out that half million now in that scenario what happens is is that they pay it out they bollock the person you know who uh put it in the wrong way around and they suck it up because that person has lost millions to them. So we don't hear of that scenario ever again. Now, let's look at another scenario where what happens is, is that someone goes up with the first round of matches for a league. Let's say it's a soccer league. And what they've done is they've accidentally made it public on the website with the default prices. And let's say the default prices are, you know, three for every outcome, you know, three decimal, whatever, you know, whatever the sort of the number of the hundred percent divided by the number of outcomes plus the bookmaker margin for that league. And they haven't realized they made it public. And someone comes in and places like a 10 pound, whatever accumulator, on a whole, you know, every permutation possible of this. So it's uh, an obvious rick that they've made. They didn't mean to do it. It's very unlikely that their intention would be to offer the same odds for every outcome for every match in that league. And someone has just literally permed the crap out of it. You know, these bets look utterly recreational. They've done all the draws, all the away team, whatever, wherever the value is, they've done it in, you know, various different things. They've got their mates on it quickly. They've done all of that, right? So now we've got a load of potentially bad actors, the kind of people who are only ever going to be looking to exploit these kind of things and potentially a massive payout. You can debate amongst yourselves, listeners, whether this is actually based on a true story or not. Um, and so you've got a whole massive liability. Let's say it's even potentially a seven-figure liability for this. And in that situation, you force the bookmaker to pay out 
right? Let's say, you know, even, you know, the bookmaker, nah, it doesn't go bust. Let's not get too hysterical about it. But, you know, it's a significant dent. What happens there? Well, everyone agrees with the bookmaker that we've got to prevent this from happening ever again. So we fire the poor fucker who did it. No, well, you know, he gets bollocked. And so then we have to figure out a way to make sure that this never happens again. And invariably, what's going to happen is that there's all likelihood that the easiest way to prevent this is some sort of bet acceptance speed bump or a very low maxed cap liability or whatever. And the last thing that someone will do is say, do you know what, if we just had some sort of sanity check within the system, which had rough expected, like even if it was a market feed coming in and says, look, if you submit these prices here, are you sure? Yes. You've got all these deviations from the sport radar feed, the bet genius feed, the TX odds feed. Are you sure? Or even if it was just deviations from your basic, fuck it, you know, ELO model, you know, simplistic ELO model that you realize you're about to submit a load of prices. That would be the, like the obvious way to not impact customer experience and create some sort of internal sanity check to prevent that from happening again. And unfortunately, we're trapped in a world where doing that development versus just capping the max payout for multiple bets or creating some sort of bet, which, which basically uses existing configuration settings and so on. Um, that's, that's what happens. So in, in effect, if we start enforcing, you know, even obvious palps on people, uh, we get this scenario whereby um, we're going to potentially impact the, you know, we're going to make bookmakers worse at what they do through their own fault um, rather than actually uh, making them better. Um, so I'm I'm all for like an arbitration, you know. But at the same time, I feel like very obvious palpable errors. It's like you know the the worst offender ruins it for everyone, you know. So I think you can't get rid of palpable errors completely because of the nature of a few bad actors who have gone to town on it, you know. But there'll be plenty of people listening to this thinking, like, I do not see what's wrong with anything you've just said. Fuck them. You know, they're in business. They've made a mistake. They've got punished. But, you know, I, I, I think there should be an, you know, an encouraging environment for people to act in a fair way you know have regulatory bodies for finance and things like that to try and stop you know boiler room selling people to you know old ladies or whatever and you know we have these kind of things to try and prevent bad actors and these things should work in in both ways as far as i'm concerned you know bad in you know the companies offering the service should feel a sense of protection and the customer should feel a sense of protection as well so i would say that it is you know there are there are people who will enforce these palps, and I dare say there are. You know it, it ought to be said that even the areas like say Italy, where there is you know you have to people say you have to pay out the palp, there is still an appeals process in Italy, and if you can clearly make a good enough case, you know, then you know you can get it overturned. Um, I'm not so sure about the Nordics. I think some of the national Nordic bookmakers, but in their cases, they've got quite low payout limits in some people. So, you know, they risk, they limit it there by another, you know, by another route. So, yeah, I mean, I, I always think that, but then again, you know, setting up a body whose sole job is to basically look through, you know, hundreds of bets a week about whether was this a palp, was this not. Hey, it's a, it's, it's a business idea for Sport Radar. You know, we should be able to say the market average was this, the deviation was this, falls within or without the boundaries, you know, of acceptability, you know. But then if you give one person the power of arbitration, it would have to be something that all these bookmakers sign up to and then agree that we will take the palp arbitration. I mean, there's already IBAS for arbitration anyway in the UK, you know, people and people sort of have... Mm, middling levels of success with it. Some people have got really positive experience of going sort of arbitration for these kind of bets and other people it's been terrible. So No, I certainly think it's useful to kind of like you said, it's it's a strange, strange kind of 
society's view on on how things work and, and where we're at and i mean it's just it's interesting to get those or that that perspective on it i think i mean we've we've got through part two we're another hour and a bit in we could easily do part three but we'll have to call it a day for today i, I wish i could record record podcasts all day but i have got some some other work to get onto as well um thanks for coming on thanks for being open and, and honest and and giving us really interesting perspective on on what sports betting is about, what the industry's like, and and kind of your thoughts on things. Um, I've really enjoyed it. So so just want to say thank you very much. Pleasure, Ben. Thank you very much for having me on. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to today's episode of Serious About Betting. You can learn more about what we've discussed on the podcast by heading to the betting resources section of the Pinnacle website. We've got thousands of articles that cover everything you need to know about about betting. You can also follow us on Twitter with at Pinnacle to keep up to date with the content we're putting out. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the latest episode of the Serious About Betting podcast. Remember to subscribe to the Pinnacle podcast on your preferred platform to keep up to date with all of our series. You can also review the podcast, give us feedback and suggest future guests that you want to be interviewed.